The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Tuesday, March 9th, 2021. While the Democrats have moved on to subverting the 2024 election, Republicans are still anxious to get to the bottom of how the Dems subverted the 2016 election. It's not an easy task. To get to the bottom, you've got to probe way deeper than a rinky-dink Chicom anal swab. But today... Today, we can bring you news of the looming, imminent, any-day-now Durham report. Oh, hang on a minute. My apologies. I didn't say that right. Let me have another go. The Durham report! The Durham report! The Durham report! Well, since my baby left me, when I found a new place to dwell, when it's dead at the end, Previously on the Durham Report, you'll recall that Kevin. Kleinsmith, the Department of Justice's Deputy Assistant Undersecretary of Designated Fall Guys, had been... Oh, oh, wait a minute. Before we get to previously on the Durham Report, I should explain for our non-American listeners. When corrupt 'er ne'er-do-wells deeply embedded in the most powerful agencies on earth abuse their duty to do justice and instead do the bidding of the ruling political party by using Five Eyes intelligence sharing to get foreign assets to backdoor their way into the presidential campaign of the ruling party's political opponents, the system has an ingenious check and balance. The appointment of a man of integrity, a straight shooter, a Boy Scout, No, not in the transphobic class-action suit sense, obviously. But in the sense of a man more upright than Jeffrey Toobin on a 40-minute Zoom call. A crack investigator determined to follow the evidence. Such a man is John Durham. Durham, 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 Durham Report. It's coming soon. The Durham Report isn't a job for the faint-hearted. No, sir, it can take years of your life to investigate the previous guy's investigation. It takes guts to kiss your loved ones goodbye and head for the DOJ Learjet. Settle back in your seat as it taxis down the runway bound for an Australian High Commissioner's beach house. Knowing that by the time you return, those loved ones may not even remember who you are. 
back in 1944 I remember Durham walking out the door Mama told me he would get him for sure He would get him Comey, Clapper, Brandon, Strzok and Steel Now I'm gonna read old Durham soon I'm gonna read old Durham soon certainly can get you doomed, but John Durham has to dot every I and cross every T before all the I's and T's get redacted by the Department of Justice Press Office. Okay, I hope that helps our non-American listeners as to the significance of what's going on here. Now, can we do the previously on the Durham Report thing? Previously on... The Durham Report! The Durham Report! The Durham Report! Okay, previously on the Durham Report, you'll recall that Kevin Kleinsmith, the DOJ's Deputy Assistant Undersecretary of Designated Fall Guys, confessed to Durham, confessed to his crimes, crimes of faking evidence vital to the FISA court, and the judge threw the book at him. It's a book by John Brennan on how to get a CNN contributor's deal. And then the judge sentenced him to a 100 hours of community service. He's helping build a soup kitchen for FBI agents staking out Roger Stone's house. And Washington was stunned that in this town, the most powerful men, men who can snap their fingers and command the best tables at any Georgetown restaurant, are not above the law and can find themselves getting a dainty slap on the wrist that can sometimes sting for up to three or four minutes. So now the deep staters are in terror. After Kevin Kleinman, uh, Klein, Kleinberg, Kleintweedle, whatever his name is, the most powerful deep staters are terrified and wondering who'll be next. So what about that? We heard John Ratcliffe on the show earlier, and he said, look, I met with John Durham a year ago, with Bill Barr as well, and we all agreed together that there was absolutely no reason to start an investigation of collusion into Trump's people. Uh, there was no predicate. Will there be jail time? Are we going to see indictments? I mean, it's been five years. Some of the witnesses that I've talked to and their defense lawyers feel like John Durham is getting ready to pull the trigger on some criminal charges. So you think we'll see criminal charges and potential indictments then? I, I do. Based on what I'm hearing, I believe that's a strong possibility. And probably in the six, next six to eight weeks, I think they're that far along. They're that far along. The next uh, six to eight weeks would be late April, early May for John Durham's criminal indictments. Can anything 
Stop the wheels of justice grinding over the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt Department of Justice and Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, well, apparently you can't just bring indictments all on your own, some. Again, he has to get permission from the just, uh, Biden Justice Department. We'll have to see if that happens. Hmm. We'll have to see if the Biden Justice Department gives Durham permission to indict all Biden's former Obama administration buddies. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was trying very hard to say that without laughing. What's that? They just need Biden's permission. What's that? Biden's permission. That's all. Take him home. Just get him the hell out of here! Forget it, Jake. It's Durham Town. for another Durham Report Watch update on The Mark Stein Show. Okay, don't touch that dial because another Mark Stein Show Durham Report Watch update could break out at any moment. Until then, how can you follow that? Well, how about calming down with Canadian content? The Mark Stein Show presents Andrew Lawton's Canadian Content. He's Justin's favorite for next Governor General of Canada. It's all yours, Andrew. Thank you, Mark. Members of the Grace Life Church in Edmonton, that's the capital of Alberta, have had a substitute at the pulpit the last few weeks as their pastor, James Coates, remains behind bars. Now, Coates' unforgivable sin in the eyes of the state, having church in lockdown. So, James Coates and his church believe that the government's restrictions, which allow for just 15% capacity in the church, violate Albertans' right to practice their religion free from state interference. Here's his lawyer, John Carpe. It's arbitrary when you consider that restaurants are not limited to 15% of the fire code. Uh, the, the Walmarts and superstores are open. The liquor stores are open. Uh, these, these rules are so arbitrary and they're, they're unscientific. I mean, I've, I've asked the Alberta government repeatedly what, on what basis do you believe that asymptomatic people are spreaders of the virus? Show me the science. And you just get stonewalled. Every question you ask of the government about lockdowns, about their science, you get stonewalled, you get no response. So uh, I, I think, you know, religious freedom is, is, is one very important aspect of it, but there, there, there's another part of it that uh, Pastor Coates, like so many other Albertans, he sees that these measures are stupid, uh, they're, they're not bringing about any good, they're arbitrary, 
and, uh, and, and they're futile because uh, there's not a single example in history of any society, country, province uh, that, that uh, succeeded in vanquishing a virus by placing all kinds of restrictions on, on the entire population for 11 months. The court asked Pastor Coates if he would stop. He said no, so they threw him in jail. He appealed, and on Friday, the appellate judge decided he must stay locked up until his trial in May. Now, that'll be two and a half months that Pastor James Coach will have spent behind bars for violating supposed public health guidelines, despite no evidence there's ever been a single transmission of COVID at his church. Now, I can't help but notice there are no imams or rabbis behind bars in Alberta, so far as I can tell. Probably just a coincidence. Lest you think this is just a consequence of electing some hippy-dippy left-wing government, I should tell you this is all happening under Conservative Premier Jason Kenney, formerly a minister in Stephen Harper's federal government. And again, for context, Alberta is regarded by, I think, fans and foes as the Texas of Canada. It's the birthplace of Ted Cruz, for crying out loud. And I should say, this isn't just Alberta being some tough-on-crime, zero-tolerance, no-nonsense jurisdiction. The very same week that Pastor Coates lost his appeal, police in Edmonton were forced to warn the community after a perennial child sex abuser was released, despite everyone realizing that he's likely to re-offend. And so in Edmonton, a pastor is imprisoned while a recurring child sex predator has the prison doors unlocked in front of him for him to waltz right out is another example of the real injustice coming from the state itself. The Costco down the street can be loaded up to the nines on Sunday, but not the Grace Life Church. And I should say, Mark, I actually held off on talking about this last week. I held out hope that this wrong would have been righted by now at the appeal stage, but it hasn't. The state has doubled down and continues to, and the conservative government in Alberta is nowhere to be found. When Canada's most conservative government is jailing ministers for the crime of preaching, it is next to impossible to have any faith in the future of the country, let alone the future of the right. Just a few provinces to the east in Ontario, my stomping grounds, two conservative members of the provincial legislature, Roman Baber and Belinda Carajalios, have been ejected from their party's caucus for opposing lockdowns. Another member of Ontario's legislature, Randy Hillier, was actually charged for speaking against lockdowns at a rally an opposition member charged for speaking out against the government. And this is in Canada, which I think is like the idyllic utopia to the American left. Opposing lockdowns has been characterized as a fringe position, even unwelcome in parties who've always prided themselves as standing up for religious liberty and for business. And as we near the one-year anniversary of the first lockdown, it is safe to say the state is more interested in stifling the dissent than actually getting us out of this one. Back to you, Mark. Thank you, Andrew. I've known for many years both the aforementioned Jason Kenney and the aforementioned Randy Hillier. Both men have been principled opponents of the Canadian hate speech laws that got me in deep water. But even so, I can't think that Randy ever expected the restraints on freedom of expression to be tightened this much this fast. And I can't think Jason ever wanted to become premier of a province that jails nonconformist priests. Yet here they are. One thing you notice is that aside from a few Republican governors, not all by any means, look at Charlie Baker in Massachusetts and the uh, Social Democrats of Sweden and that rather cute PM they have in Estonia in the age of lockdown. 
It doesn't seem to make any difference who you elect for the most part in a COVID world nominally right-wing, left-wing, centrist governments are all doing the same thing to their citizens, good and hard. And all are ever more comfortable with overbearing state power. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. How did members of the royal family open up their hearts to the world and to posterity before Oprah came along? Well, once in a while, they wrote a poem. In Tudor England, to generalise very roughly, theatre was for the masses while poetry was for the elites. Uh, Rather as in our own time, A-listers spill the beans to Oprah while nobodies do it. Uh, on Jerry Springer. Uh, Today's poem was composed in the late 16th century by Queen Elizabeth I. She reigned for 45 years and was a most consequential sovereign. She established an English Protestant church and named herself Supreme Governor, an office her namesake holds today. She presided over a significant expansion in England's global reach, and one of the greatest military victories of all time over the Spanish Armada. But she was also a woman. And indeed, when she ascended the throne at the age of 25, the most marriageable maid in the realm, she came to believe that receiving a suitor would be perceived as a weakness a female monarch could not afford. And so she grew old alone and known to her subjects as the Virgin Queen. But as this poem suggests, she remembered when things might have been otherwise, and her memories are suffused in regret. Uh, There's a line she came up with for this poem, which has stuck with me over the years, because it's rather good. Cupid, after addressing her mockingly as my dainty dame, uh, dainty in the sense of being picky, choosy, Uh, says, for that you be so coy as in flirty, I will so pluck your plumes. Pluck your plumes, which I think uh, has a kind of double meaning here. First, Cupid will remove all her fripperies and fineries, de-queen her, as it were, and reveal just the woman underneath, desirous of love. But it also means, I think, A woman stripped of her good looks, ravaged by time, dependent on wigs and powders uh, to conceal the years, and thus no longer in a position to scorn those who would importune her. Written late in life by Elizabeth, Queen of England, France and Ireland, Defender of the Faith, etc., etc., was part of that official royal title and style. I didn't just throw it in there. Uh, By Queen Elizabeth, a royal poem, When I Was Fair and Young. When I was fair and young, then favour graced me. Of many was I sought their mistress for to be, but I did scorn them all and answered them therefore, Go, 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 seek some other way importune me no more. How many weeping eyes I made to pine in woe, how many sighing hearts I have not skill to show, but I the prouder grew, and still this spake therefore, go, go, 
go, seek some other way, importune me no more. Then spake fair Venus' son, that proud victorious boy, saying, You dainty dame, for that you be so coy, I will so pluck your plumes, as you shall say no more. Go, 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 seek some other way, importune me no more. As soon as he had said, such change grew in my breast, that neither night nor day I could take any rest. Wherefore I did repent that I had said before, Go, 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 seek some other way, importune me no more. A poem from Me to You by Queen Elizabeth I and found among her papers after her death. The Virgin Queen telling all, but not to Oprah. Go, 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 seek some other way. Importune me no more. Mark Stein is breathing new life into death. The Mark Stein Club is proud to present a new weekly audio special, a serialization of Mark Stein's Passing Parade. Tune in every Saturday as Mark shares obituaries and appreciations for folks from Ronald Reagan and the Queen Mum to Ray Charles and the guy who invented Cool Whip, exclusively for members of the Mark Stein Club. Find out more by going to www.steinonline.com. Mark's mailbox is on the air, and George Pereira. I do hope I pronounced that uh, correctly, George. George is a first-day founding member of the Mark Stein Club from Massachusetts, some ways to my south. And George says, Mark, I know we talk about medicine and such as an easy way of making sure a war with China would be over as soon as the first headache or muscle strain appears, but what about something far simpler? Triple A or double A or B or C or D batteries. What if the supply train stopped? What if the wireless world had nothing to power it? Does anyone have wired replacements? What else do we have that depends on batteries? PC motherboards, routers, and how much other infrastructure, hearing aids, pacemakers, and other medical equipment, and how much else without even the threat of withholding medicine? Everything eventually stops if there are no batteries. I'm not living in G's world. I'm only here because I haven't caught his attention and he hasn't pulled the plug yet. And that's an excellent point, George. I only use the aspirin example uh, because I think it's easy to grasp. But you are quite correct. Over 80% of the planet's batteries are made in China, maybe higher now. Uh, including the batteries for electric cars. So moving to electric cars is just a way of making one more part of our lives utterly dependent on China, because oil, at least, is found in many parts of the free world. So the bad news is we're going to lose to China, but the good news is that we're going to lose without a shot being fired. I did business in the United States long before I emigrated here, and I was always amazed about the restrictions on foreign 
ownership. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, uh, for example, became an American citizen because otherwise it would have been illegal for him to own a US television network. But restrictions on foreign ownership are ludicrous and irrelevant uh, when it's perfectly legal to transfer every industry that matters to a hostile foreign power, uh, including, as uh, George points out, batteries. So, welcome to the new America. Batteries not included. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. An assassination in Berlin, a ragtime princess in your parlor, and divorcing a lunatic husband. It's March 1921. Your World News update. The messy aftermath of the Great War continues with French, Belgian and British troops occupying German cities following the failure of negotiations on war reparations in London The Allied Reparations Commission has now demanded that Berlin pay, as its first instalment, one billion gold marks by March the 23rd and 12 billion marks by May the 1st. The German government has responded that it cannot afford to pay such a sum, even if it felt it owed it. The former Grand Vizier to the Sultan of Turkey, Talat Pasha, Wanted as a war criminal, has been assassinated in Berlin. Talat was one of the three leaders of the Young Turk movement and regarded as the single man most responsible for initiating the appalling massacre of the Armenian people. He and his wife had left their house at 4 Hardenbergstrasse in the Charlottenburg district, when the killer walked past, turned back to confirm the identity and shot Talat dead with a single round from a Luger pistol. With a second bullet, he wounded the Pasha's wife, all in broad daylight. The assassin was seized by angry passers-by who beat him severely until the police arrived. We are both foreigners, the killer said by way of explanation of himself and his victim. This has nothing to do with you. He is an Armenian student called Sogomon Telirian. As for post-Ottoman Turkey, the Soviet Union has recognised the government of the Republic of Turkey and Constantinople as the new republic's capital. The Bolsheviks march on with the Soviet conquest of the Democratic Republic of Georgia well underway. The French Navy cruiser Ernest Renan has transported Georgia's gold reserves out of the port of Batumi to be shipped to the Georgian government in exile in France. Almost 6,000 miles away at Altanbulag, The Soviet Union has established a provisional people's government of Mongolia while keeping the recently restored Bogd Khan on his precarious Mongolian throne. The Bolsheviks win some, the Bolsheviks lose some. In Yerevan, the Bolshevik government of the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic has been overthrown. Who's the coming man in Moscow? Well, it looks like it's Grigory Zinoviev, a protégé of Lenin, 
who has now been made a full member of the ruling Politburo. Great Britain has become the first Western nation to implement normal commercial relations with the Bolsheviks, with the signing of the Anglo-Soviet Trade Agreement. But who will get to be the new emir of Transjordan? That's one of the questions before the Middle East conference that's just opened at the Semiramis Hotel in Cairo, convened by Colonial Secretary Winston Churchill to discuss the future of the new British mandates in Mesopotamia and Palestine. In the United States, Theodore Roosevelt Jr., son of the 26th U.S. president, now holds the same office in President Harding's administration that his father did in President McKinley's. Like Pa, Teddy Jr. is the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. I met with Napper Candy and he took me by the hand And he said, how poor old Ireland and how does she stand? That ever yet was seen For the hanging men and women there For wearing of the green Don't wear the green on St. Patrick's Day if it's your army uniform. The United States government has issued an order forbidding military personnel from wearing their uniforms in the St. Patrick's Day parades in Massachusetts. The explanation is that the troops may claim they're celebrating Evacuation Day, the day British forces left Boston after the siege of the city in the Revolutionary War, but the government is concerned it may be seen as US Army support for the Irish Republican rebels currently fighting British forces in Ireland. Six months ago, Charles Comiskey, the owner of the Chicago White Sox, suspended eight players charged with throwing the 1919 World Series in the so-called Black Sox scandal. Although only Shoeless Joe Jackson and Buck Weaver remain under contract with the White Sox, Mr Comiskey has now sent all eight men formal notices of unconditional release. Maybe she might never leave her for more than a day. Horses hundreds that lose them that way. So keep your 
Keep your eye on the girlie you love. That's good advice from Ruth Roy, even if she does call you Clarence when your name is Jake. The grand comic singer celebrated as the Princess of Ragtime is appearing this month at the Davis Theatre in Pittsburgh and radio broadcaster KDKA decided it was time for another of its famous wireless firsts. On March the 4th, the station broadcast a simultaneous reading of President Harding's inaugural address at the exact moment he was delivering it in Washington. That wouldn't really work with Ruth Roy because her delivery is so unique, you can't just delegate it to a radio announcer. So instead, the station relayed the first live broadcast of a stage performance direct from the Davis Theatre. So now you no longer have to leave your home to enjoy Miss Roy. You can just switch on the receiving equipment, put on your slippers and fill up your pipe. Just put on your slippers and fill up your pipe. You're not going bye-bye to my Now no earthly use making that old excuse. Let me tell you, kiddo. Do you like futuristic social drama? A Bill of Divorcement, a new play by a new playwright called Clements Dane, has opened at St Martin's Theatre in London's West End. The theatre programme advises that, quote, the action passes on Christmas Day 1933. The audience is asked to imagine that the recommendations of the majority report of the Royal Commission on Divorce versus Matrimonial Causes have become the law of the land. In other words, Clements Dane foresees a world just 12 years in the future in which British women will be allowed to initiate divorce proceedings against an incurably insane husband. Nothing of the sort, we hope, will afflict the Princess Helen of Greece and Denmark, daughter of King Constantine, who has been wed in Athens to Crown Prince Carol of Romania, son of King Ferdinand. The English romance novelist Florence Barclay is dead at 59. Her tale of undying love, The Rosary, was the number one best-selling novel of 1910 in the United States. Jenny Kempton is dead at 85. Born in Dublin, New Hampshire, she was for half a century an acclaimed American contralto whose fans included Longfellow, Emerson and Oliver Wendell Holmes. Francis Upton is dead at 68, best known as the man who assisted Thomas Edison in the development of electrical power distribution. He was responsible for many innovations of his own. His invention of 1890, the first electric fire alarm, did not make the impact it might have been expected to do, possibly because of an unfortunate typographical error which patented it as the first electric tire alarm. Pete Harrison is dead at 36. The English have no great feeling for baseball, but Mr. Harrison, born across the Atlantic, became a great major league umpire in America. Stricken by tuberculosis, worsened by influenza, Pete Harrison died at Saranac Lake. As the Boston Braves' Rabbit Marinville said, every ball player in the National League will miss Pete Harrison. 
S.W. Burnham is dead at 82. He had a rudimentary education at Thetford Academy in Vermont, but he became a great astronomer. Mr. Burnham discovered 451 new double stars and became a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. He is now among those stars forever. And that's The Way of the World, March 1921. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Speaking of a hundred years ago, we missed what would have been the centenary of Betty Hutton a week or two back, a rather loud and brassy film star of the 40s and 50s, so loud and brassy, in fact, that eventually songwriters started writing songs for her that could only be belted, like murder, he says. He says murder, he says. Every time we kiss, he says murder, he says. Papa, don't preach. No, no, not the Madonna song. I came to Paris to buy me a gown. To Paris, to Paris, and oh, what a town. The lights were shining, the music was gay. I bought me my gown and decided to stay. Now, Papa, don't preach to me, preach to me, Papa, don't preach to me. Let my heart break while it's young. Now, Papa, don't preach to me, preach to me, Papa, don't preach to me. Let me fling till my fling is all flung. But for the perils of Pauline, Frank Lesser gave Betty Hutton something different, a lovely, achy torch song that became a minor standard. From our Frank Lesser centenary show, here's a live performance of that number by my sweet gingerbread girl miss jessica martin i wish i did love you so uh this is a lovely movie ballad and uh and and it's not really that well known is it no it's a beautiful ballad and it was sung by a lady who wasn't known for singing ballads she was known for sort of singing very loud and mm. uh, knocking over microphones betty hutton yeah. and she sang it in a film called the perils of pauline about yeah. a silent movie star. And Bet- Betty Hutton in, uh, sang a lot of Frank Lesser songs, but as you said, they were all these kind of terribly loud novelty. Now, she did that one, uh, I think it was Hamlet. Uh, uh, he he bumped off his uh, brother and he mickey-finned his mother, drove his gal to suicide, <laughs> stabbed her big brother. Uh, that, a that forerunner one. of rap. That's that right. Hep uh, cat, jive talk. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, and Murder, he, I think Murder, Murder, he he says. says, They're all kind of loud songs, loud novelty songs. And so out of nowhere comes this uh, exquisite ballad. Yes, which she sang beautifully and very sincerely. But I just thought I've always wanted to sing that song. OK, here's here's Jessica. uh, And there's like a touch of the, in this arrangement, there's a touch of uh, like a 1940s glitter ball over the dance floor in in, in this arrangement. Uh, And we're going to do a little kind of uh, uh, picture painting for you because the uh, the clarinets of uh, Howard McGill and Chris Caldwell are going to like set the mood for you. Here's Jessica, I Wish I Didn't Love You So.
just your kiss Torture me as long as this I might be smiling by now With some new Lovely, Jessica. That's uh, that's one for the nightclub act. Thank you. Yeah. Let's just get the act together and see what we can do. <laughs> okay, that's that is uh, that is beautiful. I wish I didn't love you so, Jessica Martin and the band, conducted by Kevin Amos, as performed live on our Frank Lesser centenary celebration a decade back. I do like those clarinets, Howard McGill and Chris Caldwell. And I'm awfully grateful to Betty Hutton for prompting Frank Lesser to write that song for her.
That will do it for today's show. Laura's links will round up the internet for you on Wednesday. Thursday, we have another Clubland Q&A in which I answer questions from Mark Stein Club members live around the planet. That's 4 p.m. North American Eastern Time, 9 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. You can work it out from there. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.